Well, Stu Heads, summer's over, so you know what that means. Uh, I'm your host, Leah. I'm Phil. And I'm Steve. It's officially the season when we start thinking about creepy and spooky stories. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. The autumn equinox has come and gone, bringing with it longer and longer nights and colder weather as winter approaches. That means the beginning of the spooky season with Halloween right around the corner. Yeah, We've talked before about how the candy-heavy holiday is the eve <laughs> of the religious holiday. Very yeah. Hey, it's holiday. one of my favorite because it's got so much candy. I love I love Reese's. I've already had to hide the candy from my wife in the house. She well, said, please hide it from me because we'll eat it all before Halloween. She we said. have candy out. We buy candy. We don't get any trick-or-treaters. It's mm-hmm. just for us, right? <laughs> um, but we all know. We've talked about how it's, uh, a, you know, the eve of the religious holiday, All Saints Day all or Saints All Day, Hallows yeah. Day. Uh-huh. So the name Halloween comes from the contraction of the words All Hallows Eve. Right. The customs are based on Samhain, the Irish celebration marking the end of the harvest, and all the work that went into preparing for a long winter. Right. And a lot of cultures we've talked about have those winter or or harvest. Even the Romans did as well. Yes, that's right. During Samhain, the family's ancestors were honored and invited to draw near while harmful, harmful spirits were warded off. A community bonfire, and I found this a little tidbit that yeah. we had uh, covered before. It's really interesting. A community bonfire was an important tradition with the families extinguishing the hearth fires in each of their homes and then and they would clean it out and then relighting the fires from the with bonfire. A, with a flame from a bon from the bon- community bonfire. Oh interesting. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Well, you know, many cultures around the world have celebrations similar to Halloween, art, sawin. Uh, let's talk about, if you're familiar with the Hispanic culture, uh, in, particularly in Mexico, you might have heard of Dio de los Muertos. Yes, mm-hmm. I love that yeah. one. Uh, November 1st is uh, Dio de los Muertos, our Day of the Dead. Uh, there was really a pretty nice movie in 2020 about this. I don't know if you saw it. It was kind of an animated uh, mm-hmm. Pixar kind of movie, but it was, it was pretty nice. No, wait a minute. No, I never saw that. Now I saw Coco, which is all about that. Is that what you're talking about, or it was called uh, Day of the Dead? There was, well, was, was it a short? Okay, now I'm, no, now it, I'm stumped. Was Coco the same one? Coco is the one about the kid and the guitar. Yeah, uh-huh. That's all about Deus. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. Okay, he I'm, only I'm, had one day to right. make it yeah. right so he can come back to human That's life. right. That's the one I'm talking about is Coco. <clears throat> Coco. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's not called Day of the Dead. It was about Day of the Dead. Yeah. Anyway, to folks of this culture, November 1st is a day that the spirits of their dead relatives come back for a visit. Throughout Mexico, the night before, which is October 31st, is filled with preparations as homes are decorated with marigolds and photos of their lost loved ones. Marigolds are considered to be the flower of, day, of the Day of the Dead. Then, in, uh, in the country of Haiti, we have something called Fet Geta, our Festival of the Dead. It's a tradition practiced in Haiti on November 1st and 2nd. Those practicing the religion of voodoo dance in the street to commune with their ancestors. They visit graveyards where they share food with uh, with food from their own tables with their dead loved ones. 
It's a vibrant celebratory atmosphere. Fete Gede is often described as the voodoo equivalent of Mardi Gras or Dio de los Muertos. Okay. Very colorful. Because they get an extra uh, day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, now for something a little different, let's go over to the island nation of Japan. Uh, Japan has embraced the celebration of Halloween, but in its own way. They do things a little differently there. Trick-or-treating has never really become popular, but the Japanese take dressing up in costumes to a whole nother level. (laughs) While we Americans might throw something together from a costume store or make something from a thrift store... Quality cosplay is a serious pastime in Japan. It's a And Halloween is the perfect time to go all out. Celebrations invoke zombie uh, zombie runs, flash mobs, <laughs> and street parties. Mm-hmm. Japan's famous bullet trains are transformed well, that one night into a colorful Halloween bash. Wow. Which is interesting because, you know, the Japanese are so stoic and, and kind of. uh, poised, I guess. Right. And, uh, and they then, let it hang that, out on Halloween. That's right. On Halloween, it's <laughs> all a different down. story. <laughs> right. Well, what is Halloween without the legend of witches cackling and flying through the night on uh, broomsticks? Right. How exactly, though, did witches get associated with riding on magically flying brooms? It's a <laughs> Halloween icon that has persisted down to modern times. According to History.com, the origin of brooms is a little murky, but mention of people using a bundle of thin twigs or sticks to sweep up dust and dirt shows up in the Bible's New Testament, which dates back to the first century A.D. The word broom comes from the actual plant used to make the cleaning device rather than vice versa. I see. Like I thought it was. And from its very beginning, brooms were strongly associated with women who, of course, do most of the work around the house. Women's work back in the day, I guess, yeah. (laughs) And became a powerful symbol of female domesticity. In spite of this, the first person to ever confess to writing on a broom was actually a man (laughs) by the name, yes, of Guillaume Edelin. Guillaume was a priest that was arrested in Paris in 1453 and accused of witchcraft. His confession of practicing witchcraft was coerced through torture, like many of the other confessions of the same. He later recanted, but was imprisoned for the rest of his life. Um, Before the priest's confession, though, the idea of witches flying on broomsticks had already been established. A 1451 manuscript by a French poet has illustrations of women, women riding around on um, either a, one is on a broom and the other is on just a regular stick. Just a stick without the broom. That's right. The <laughs> women were illustrations of members of the Christian sect, the Waldesians, who were branded as heretics for allowing women to become priests. Okay. The truth is that there were many customs and folklore attached to the broom as a strong symbol of home and the female soul that kept the home. There's the fertility ritual that farm. There's a lot of things that, that yeah. just go on with brooms. Um, there's the fertility ritual that has farmers leaping over brooms to ensure a good crop. Yeah, I've heard that. Better yeah. than leaping over babies. Yeah. Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, that's another tradition we've talked <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> Women would often leave their broom propped outside their door or chimney or by their chimney outside to communicate that they were away from home. And that led to the notion that the broom, this is so strange, but it's such a, a medieval type notion. Right. Uh, the idea that 
the broom was placed at the ready for a woman to jump on it and ride up and out of the house through the chimney. Oh, <laughs> I'm out of here. There you go. <laughs> In spite of a, of a very few confessed witches during the historic trials ever mentioning brooms, the idea has endured through the ages. And in the movie, The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah, we're watching it in my house earlier today. <laughs> the Wicked Witch of the West uses a broom to get around, and it's said that that particular depiction cemented it in modern society. Oh, oh yeah. The partnership between a witch and her broom. And more recently, of course, you've got the Harry Potter series where all these kids are outside the, the store. Yeah. Well, they're outside the oh, store looking right. for the Nimbus 2000. Right. Yeah, they want the next so best bad. broom. And also the movie Hocus Pocus, one of my favorites, has three witches, two of which ride brooms and the other with a vacuum, rides a vacuum, <laughs> a vacuum cleaner with wow. a cord hanging down. Like not being, uh, uh, with the modern twist. Of, uh, That's right. <laughs> you remember Bewitched, though, the TV show when I was a kid. I don't, was... They mentioned that in this in this yeah. article, and uh, I don't know that she was ever yeah, I, well, saw, the, seen with a with a broom. The, the real actress, no, but at the, but in the at intro, the, there was an animated right. intro, and she yeah, was a uh, on a broom there. That's yeah. right. That's right. Well, I got my infra- information from history.com. Right. Well, on a creepy note, I thought we could tell some stories about people who died in very odd circumstances. Oh, that's going to be fun. <laughs> on June 4th, 1923, at New York's Belmont Park, 22-year-old jockey Frank Hayes won the only race of his career on a horse named Sweet Kiss. Sweet Kiss. Okay. <laughs> Hayes, Hayes was a stable hand. A nice hand. story so far. Yeah. So So far, (laughs) Hayes was a stable hand turned jockey and achieved a surprise victory when he won the race against 20 to 1 odds, beating out the fan favorite horse named Gimme. Uh However, that wasn't the most shocking thing the crowd witnessed that day. After crossing the finish line, Hayes tumbled from the saddle to the ground. The track doctor rushed over to the jockey and and immediately pronounced him dead. Wow. It seems that Frank Hayes died of a heart attack sometime during the race, and his body managed to stay in the <laughs> saddle, making him the only jockey that won a race after death. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's unclear if the horse ever raced again, but uh, after that, he did earn the nickname Sweet Kiss oh, of sweet Death. Sweet Kiss of Death. <laughs> okay. I got that story from CNN.com. <laughs> And I this next story, I thought we had talked about the death oh. of Jennifer Strange before, but I could not find it in any of our notes. So here goes. In 2007, a Sacramento, California radio station, KDND 107.9, held a contest in which they were giving away a Nintendo Wii video game system for the winner. Okay. The contest was called Hold, hold Your Wii for a Wii. Oh, this, oh, this is, no. <laughs> oh, that's not good. If, not if good Phil doesn't well. like it, that's really bad. Yeah. Jennifer, oh, Strange was, bad. Jennifer Strange was a 28-year-old mother of three that thought her chances of winning the contest were good, especially she managed to stay in the contest as it dwindled from 20 contestants down to just two. After drinking nearly two gallons of water, Strange was incredibly sick. Oh. She she dropped out of the contest and gave the win over to the other contestant. Mm. Jennifer Strange was later found in her home dead of water poisoning. Did wow. you even know that was a thing? I've you heard can of die it, yeah. of too much water. You too can die water. of too much of anything, yeah. honestly. Apparently, two gallons of water is going to kill you. Yeah. Too much water can kill you, and many people called the radio station during the live airing of the contest to say as much, but the DJs just laughed and made light of the subject. The station faced many legal uh, proceedings so. uh, no after doubt. the incidents, uh. and the DJs were fired. Yeah. Uh, that, that info 
five came from a 2007 um, Associated Press article for NBCNews.com and also InsiderExclusive.com. Now, can you laugh yourself to death? It's, uh, I've, I've heard tried, of it happening. Yeah, get... it's a good way to go, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's been known to happen. Chrysippus was a Greek Stoic philosopher who supposedly died from hysterics. Now. You know, it's not known for sure exactly how he died, but one legend has it that he died from alcohol poisoning while drinking too much un- undiluted wine. Yeah, that'll do it. But yeah, another yeah. version says the incident of the incident says that he gave a donkey some of the wine in the same drinking incident. Okay, right. drinking event, um, and it became and then he became so overcome with laughter at the don- donkey's drunken antics. Well, a drunken donkey is pretty it's funny. Pretty funny. <laughs> well, he fell to the ground giggling and eventually started having a fit and died of hilarity. Well, um, probably pronounced dead because of alcohol poison or the alcohol itself. But you can't stop a good giggle. Yeah, That's right. right. Well, here's the thing: it might sound like a funny made-up story, <laughs> but. Has there's actually been a scientific study of the phenomenon known as recurrent laughter-induced syncope, mm. meaning fainting that is triggered by spontaneous laughter. There's a case study of a tw- uh, I'm sorry, a 62-year-old man who had fainted on at least three occasions right. while watching the television show Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> he found the character George Costanza particularly funny. I've never okay now. I've never found Seinfeld all that funny. This is just me, but yada um, yada yada. I, I, I like the idea of a show about nothing because yeah, that was pretty yes, funny. It was just true. everyday life, true. Right. And there but, was some pretty good humor good in it. There, right. I guess, yes. I guess so. I'll give it that. Yeah. The man would suddenly faint while laughing at the show, and then regain consciousness within a minute or so. But during one of the episodes, he fainted and landed face first into his dinner, oh, no. and had to be rescued by his wife. Um, he would have suffocated if she wasn't there, so he could possibly have died. Yeah. Both the man and his wife, though, insist that the only time his laughter, uh, this laughter-induced fainting happens is when he watches the show Seinfeld. So I'm like, perhaps you don't. Maybe you need to meter it out a little bit yeah. to pause um, between, uh, you know, between scenes or make something. Make sure you're in a safe space. Right. Have the medic standing by. That information came from theguardian.com. I have read of other people who have died laughing, though. So it's, it, it, it is. It's a thing. It, it is a it, thing, it, yeah. I think, you know, I think laughter can induce some, some underlying things. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Okay, so does the name Jasper Newton Daniel ring a bell? Jasper Newton Daniel. No. no. How about if I told you he went by Jack Daniel? Well, okay. <laughs> and now I think I've heard of him, yeah. Old Jack was an American distiller and businessman, best known as the founder of Jack Daniel's Tennessee Whiskey Distillery. He was born in January of 1849 and died October 9, 1911, from blood poisoning. We know that to be a fact, but legend has it that the blood poisoning was due to a gangrenous toe. Mm. Jack was always forgetting the combination to his safe and in a fit of rage at uh, at being once again unable to open the safe, he kicked it. Thus injured the toe that would shortly lead to his death. Oh, no. <laughs> death by toe. Ouch. Death by, yeah, by gangrenous toe. Mm. Um, they should and, have sent it up to Alaska to that uh, bar. Right? Exactly. <laughs> the sour toe cocktail. The sour yeah. cocktail. Oh. Um, this next one is about a gamer. World of Warcraft is a massively popular right. multiplayer game, online 
role-playing game. Mm -hmm. And one fan of the game, an admitted game addict, was 28-year-old Korean boiler maker Lee Sung Sop. Sop, I think that's right. S-E-O-P, Sop, yeah. In August of 2005, Lee went to an internet cafe near where he lived and began an extreme game-playing session. In the 50 hours of gameplay... No. Lee had no sleep, mm-hmm. very little water, and no food. That's a he problem. He only stopped long enough, uh, stopped the game long enough to use the restroom. Well, after f- yeah. up to that point, there was nothing left to and go then to the bathroom. His family wondering where he was because he didn't show yeah. up. You know, he, they had not been around. Him. Where are you? Yeah. Uh, they finally found him at the cafe and tried to get him to come home. Lee said he wanted to finish this one game and then he would leave. I've heard that from my kids. Yeah. Just let me this finish this, this one game. game. Um, but before that could happen, he collapsed from exhaustion and fell off his chair. He was rushed to the hospital where he was pronounced oh, dead. Wow. Lee's death was ruled to have been caused by heart failure, induced by exhaustion and dehydration. Wow. And I got that from StarCraftFandom.com. Mm. <laughs> Always have drink and food when playing. Mm. Yeah, you it's need better, snacks. It's better, it's better that way. Yeah, right. you get the Cheeto yeah. cheese all over All everything. over the controller that goes well on the keyboard and stuff. It makes it slick. You can... Hmm. Well, do you do you guys remember the band ELO? Oh, the yeah. Electric Light Orchestra? Orchestra yes. Yeah, they were great. Um, well, Mike Edwards was a cello player and part of the 1970s. No, I didn't realize they had a cello player in the band. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Well, I don't know. Maybe they well, did. Okay. You think some big, of this. Must have been. It's like a, it was kind of a big band thing then, too, because you had Chicago with full instruments. Yeah. And well, and too, he, so was, he was ELO in the was very. Like the next step. He was in the very early part of the. Uh, the, I don't, yeah. In its early days. Yeah. Um, he was with the band from 1972 to 1975. Mm-hmm. He was, Mike was known to be a brilliant musician whose life was ended at the age of 62 in what has been called a freak farm accident. Mm. Oh. Mike Edwards was driving his van down an English country road on September 3rd of 2010 when a farmer lost control of one bale of hay. The cylindrical hay bale weighed approximately 1,300 pounds. Wow. wow. Well, you've seen them. I mean, they're, they're huge, yeah. they're right? Yeah. Um, and it had been resting on an incline when, for unknown reasons, it started to roll. It the wind. It gathered speed, plowed through a hedge, mm. and kind of like went airborne and fell on top of Edward's car, crushing wow. both the vehicle and Edward's, killing him yeah. instantly. Oh. Killed by yeah, a bale of hay. But by a bale of hay. He wasn't bailed out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was bad. You know, um, <laughs> I, I got to say, I, having just been in the UK a few couple of weeks ago, the roads are really dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> <Is that a laughs> narrow? Really dangerous. You know, they're they're very narrow, and there's no shoulder. You know, the the hedges and everything grows right up to the road, and you literally you're going around corner, you really can't see around the corners. And there's there's are a lot of fields, so I can see how that could happen. You know, you, you could get hit without any without knowing anything happened. Any, but I would wonder away. if uh, that causes you to go slow, and they have less accidents. It doesn't seem to happen that way. It doesn't seem to, <laughs> they, they didn't seem to be going slow, <laughs> oh. including very large vehicles coming in the other lane, which to us was uh, uh, confusing already because you're there driving in the left, the, the steering side. wheel on the right. Although my, my wife did a really great job, but um, yeah, there was we had a couple of, of um, ah moments. <laughs> All moments. <laughs> Welcome back, by the way. Thank you. Welcome or a back, bit of hey. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that information came from BBC.com. And now this next story, uh, it's one, it's my <laughs> one last strange death story, which consequently I also involves something farm related dropping out of the sky. <laughs> no. According to a 2011 
HuffPost.com article, a Brazilian man named Jewel Maria de Souza was sleeping in his bed alongside his wife in their house that backed up to a steep hill. In the night, a cow had escaped from a nearby farm, wandered over to the Souza home, and by way of that steep hill made its way onto the roof. Oh, no. The corrugated metal roof was not designed to hold a 3,000-pound cow. No, not. And the cow came crashing through, falling eight feet onto the bed and atop the sleeping couple. Oh, no. <laughs> Did it go, moo? I, I don't no. know if, if it was reported no. that it said anything. <laughs> Mr. No. D'Souza died, though, the next day from his injuries. Incredibly, both Mrs. D'Souza and the cow were completely uninjured. <laughs> You wonder if maybe Mrs. D'Souza might have orchestrated this. Oh, was that way? Wait, murder by cow? Yes, I don't know. <laughs> Else the cow would have been barbecue. I would well, think. You know, you know, you know, the other wasn't sitting in the uh, in the attic. So yeah. <laughs> and now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. Well, now, uh, not completely unrelated. Uh, Let's uh, take a little bit of a uh, break uh, from our, our death stories to uh, have an oddity du jour today. But it is kind of a death story, too. Um, back in the year 2004, a woman named Philippa Langley was walking around a parking lot in Leicester, England. Okay, actually, in England, they don't call them parking lots. They call them car parks. So she was walking around the car park. Makes more sense. Okay. The area where she was walking belonged to the city's social services department, but had five centuries before been the site of the old Greyfriars Church and Cemetery. Langley was interested in locating the grave of Richard III, the controversial King of England who reigned from 1483 to 1485. That's a pretty short reign. Well, it was a short reign, but uh, here's the reason why. Richard's short reign began when he killed his nephew, King Edward V, along with all of Edward's heirs. So he's kind of, you know, you live by the sword, you die (laughs) by by the the sword. sword. (laughs) His reign ended just two years later when he died in the Battle of Bosworth at the hands of Henry Tudor, who became King Henry VII, a.k.a. the Righteous Avenger. Shakespeare referred to Richard III as, quote, that poisonous hunchback toad. (laughs) Yeah, no love lost there. Speaking of, okay, this is this is uh, some really cool uh, nicknames: the Righteous Avenger and that poisonous hunchback toad. Of course, now Shakespeare was employed by the court of Elizabeth I, who happened to be a granddaughter of King Henry Ah, VII, so he might have been a little biased in his uh, reporting about about Richard III. Well, anyway, after the fateful battle. Henry Tudor crowned himself Henry VII, and he had Richard's body buried in the Greyfriars Church. Now, later, we've talked about this before, Henry's son, Henry VIII, remember when he wanted to divorce his wife uh, and marry another woman, but the Pope said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. So, Henry VIII Uh quit Catholicism, and he acquired all the Catholic properties in England for his own. Started his own church, the Church of England. Mm -hmm. The Greyfriars Church was torn down, and over time its location, along with the grave of Richard III, was forgotten. Uh, in fact, there was even a rumor going around that uh, an angry mob had once dug up Richard's uh, remains and thrown them into the river. So now back to Philippa Langley in 2004. She wandered into the smaller of the Social Service's two parking lots, and that's when it happened. Quote, I suddenly had goosebumps. I knew that I was walking on his grave. 
Langley still doesn't know how to explain it. Perhaps it was just intuition or perhaps it was some stronger supernatural force. Whatever it was, she was convinced without a doubt that Richard's bones were just beneath her feet. While she was convinced, local officials were not. (laughs) She was going to have to find additional evidence to convince them to dig up the car park. Langley had become one of many folks interested in Richard III. She had even joined a group called the Richard III Society, which had been founded in 1924 by a group of amateur historians who were interested in gaining a truer picture of the ancient king, maybe a little bit truer than the way Shakespeare had depicted him. Yeah, so they they went with that, Richard III Society, instead of Poisonous Hunchback hunchback Toad Toad Society. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. That does have a nice ring to it. (laughs) Yeah. Could be a good name for a rock band now that you mentioned it. The Poisonous Hunchback Toads. Band name. There you go. (sighs) Anyway, another member of this group was an archaeologist whose name was John Ashdown Hill, who had studied the layout of 15th century Catholic structures in in England. He concluded that the location of the church's choir, the Greyfire Church's choir, um, that would be not the group of people singing, but a location where in, within the church, that's where the king would have been buried, and he said it was in the same location as the parking lot where Philippa Langley felt her goosebumps. Armed with Ashdown Hill's research, Philippa Langley began knocking on doors and attending local council meetings, attempting to convince local authorities for permission to dig in the parking lot. After six years of persuasion, she finally achieved permission, but the town would not provide f- uh, financing for the project. Langley then turned to the Richard, uh, Richard III Society's 4,000 members for donations. More than $28,000 poured in to fund the, the excavation. The big day came on August 25th, 2012. A large crowd gathered around the site as a diesel-powered excavator broke through the pavement. Included in the crowd were Langley, Ashdown Hill, town council members, a documentary crew, and a team of archaeologists from the University of Leicester. Most were skeptical of finding anything, but then suddenly, after only a few hours of digging, the lead archaeologist spotted what appeared to be bones. After several more minutes of carefully of careful hand digging, a full skeleton emerged. The crowd was stunned. <gasps> The archaeologists carefully packed the bones into a cardboard box, which was then taken to the forensic lab at Leicester University. Analysis of the skull revealed several slash marks as though it had been struck with a sword. Interesting. There were also stab marks on the rear of the hip bones. Wait a minute. So <laughs> <laughs> so he was stabbed, stabbed in the, the butt. Rear. Stabbed in the butt, yes. Okay. Oh. The spine appeared to be uh, somewhat curved, as in uh, scoliosis. It's not quite uh, Shakespeare's description as the hunchback, but it was uh, uh, it was uh, enough that would have caused him to walk with one shoulder raised higher than the other. Yeah, hunchback that, enough for me. <laughs> and that matches uh, matches other written descriptions of Richard the Third from the time. Um, there had been no sign of a coffin. And there were also no other skeletons located in the immediate area. The grave wasn't even quite long enough as the skull was sitting more upright than laying flat. It's sort of like they didn't quite make the grave big enough, so they just kind of threw him with his head like, sort of uh, crunched forward. Stuffed him in there? Yeah, stuffed him in there. So unceremonious. It well, appears. I mean, seriously. Yeah. Dive <laughs> stabbed in the rear. Yeah. Well, the, the, probably the stabbing in the rear occurred after his death, you know, oh, uh, yeah. from the victorious... Uh, <laughs> It appears that the individual had been killed in battle 
and hastily buried in a short grave without any pomp or ceremony. Well, further analysis of the carbon-14 in the bones indicated that the person had lived in the 1400s and had eaten a wealthy person's diet rich in proteins from beef and, uh, beef and fish. Richard III has at least one known living relative, a Canadian named Michael Ibsen, who is a 17th great-nephew. DNA samples provided by Ibsen matched that of the skeleton. Ooh. There you go. Dun, dun, dun. All of the information taken together, the battle wounds, the location, the DNA, the deformed spine, was enough for scientists to announce on February 2013 that Langley's skeleton was, in fact, the lost king. Quote, I found him, Langley says. Richard III's remains were reburied at Leicester Cathedral in 2015. Although Leicester declined to fund the dig, the city has now raised money for a visitor center. Leicester Cathedral now receives 20 times as many visitors since the discovery, and a temporary museum and gift shop has also sprouted up on the grounds. That info came from mentalfloss.com. So, interesting about um, Mrs. Langley feeling the sensation right there on the parking lot and happened to be the exact spot where Richard III had been ingloriously buried. Ingloriously <laughs> buried, yes. Five centuries before. <laughs> and then parked on, Come you know. Parked on, yeah, by the oil grease leaked on. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> well, we can't talk about creepy or spooky things without mentioning hauntings. But I'm not going to talk about haunted houses. Instead, I uh, want to talk about a couple of haunted paintings. Ooh. Yeah, how'd that happen? I remember. <laughs> well, because this is the, these are interesting. Okay, you remember we talked about the crying boy painting? Yes. That oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that it would never. It was all, always found intact in all these burning houses, and then come <laughs> to find out, it had been varnished in and something, something inflammable, non flammable. Yeah, non flammable. I think inflammable means. I think it was flammable. related to the peeing boy statue. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> We've covered a lot over these couple of years. <laughs> well, I remember the hoopla over this first painting. Yeah. It was an eBay sensation being one of the first of many items offered on the auction site with a quote-unquote haunted backstory. Uh -huh. Whether the story is real or made up to drive up sales, there is no denying that the the artist, Bill Stoneham, created something unsettling when he painted a canvas that he named The Hands That Resist Him. <laughs> And okay. we'll have a picture on our social media. It features a scowling little boy standing in front of a door full of darkened windows with hands pressed against the, the glass. Beside him is a girl doll with hollow eye sockets clutching a battery in her hands. It's an odd painting. Okay. The artist has said that the boy is a self-portrait of himself at the age of five. The doorway represents the division between the waking world and the world of fantasy and impossibilities, which I would think would be the world of nightmares. Yeah, uh, something the like that. doll is supposed to be his guide through the door. The, with, the, with the battery in her hand and hollow eyes. Yeah, okay. and hollow eyes. The painting was displayed and sold in the early 1970s. So, uh, you know, the drug well, the culture was going on. That's time. right. That's right. There was something happening. Yeah. Um, it was displayed and sold at a one-man show in an art gallery and would have sunk into oblivion if not for eBay. Uh -huh. The painting reappeared as an auction listing in February of 2000. The person who posted it said that the figures in the painting were sinister and moved about, both within and outside of the painting. Uh -huh. 
That's a good trick. The awesome. listing, well, listen, the listing was viewed over 30,000 times. Uh-huh. Of course it because, was. Because uh, know, everyone's interested in in something haunted. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, you've had these. This is just one of the very, you know, the first of yeah. these, this phenomenon of haunted backstories on eBay. Uh-huh. Um, well, after an initial bid of $199, the painting eventually received 30 bids and sold for $1,000. Bill Stoneham expressed surprise at the sudden fame of his otherwise (laughs) forgotten art piece. On his website, Stoneham states that both the owner of the gallery in which the painting was first displayed and the art critic who reviewed it died within a year of coming into contact with the painting. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And I got my information from Wikipedia and Cowling and Wilcox.com. And he actually, so he, he got, you know, famous again. For this painting. And so did he have other paintings that were of a similar nature? Or yes, or? he did. And uh, and I think they've all been, you know, the the ones that he did around the same time he did that one are all lost in, in to obscurity. Lost to the 70s, but okay. But, uh, but he has created, like, what do you call it? When uh, Second, you know. A, a, a second generation of stuff? Second generation yeah. of stuff. Like he has uh, another one that goes along with this. It's him grown up in it. So it's. It's bizarre. So he he's it's got his little weird. fifteen minutes of fame. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm try to capitalize. One thousand twenty five dollars. Now this next one is a famous artist. We've talked before about Edward Munch's right, painting the, the Scream, which is by itself a interesting uh, kind of mm-hmm. interesting. With it depicts a man screaming in the foreground, while others in the background are seemingly oblivious to the screaming man's plight, yeah. and it's unsettling. There's another of Munch's paintings that's. More unsettling to me, though. I understand there were actually four different screams that he painted. Well, yeah. that's right. And I think then we talked about that once before. And then mm-hmm. this painting I'm going to talk about has a couple different versions of it as well. Yeah. Similar in many ways to the scream, the dead mother is a painting depicting a little girl standing with her hands to either side of her face, just like the the, the guy scream. in the scream. Yeah. Uh, behind her is a bed where her pale and colorless mother lies dead. Mourners dressed in black within the background of the painting pay no attention to the little girl's distress. Oh. It's really not surprising that people find the painting uh, unsettling and consider it to be haunted or at least makes them feel very sure. uneasy in its presence. Right. Munch experienced the death of his mother as well as two siblings to tuberculosis. Yeah, when he was pretty young, I believe. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So he created several paintings with death as the subject. And what I find really odd is when I – when I was researching this, I came across two different versions of this painting. But now I'm thinking it actually was two different paintings, um, but with the same kind of subject. One one shows a little girl that is about four or, or four or five or five or six, and she mm-hmm. wears an innocent white dress. Where in the other, she she appears older and in a red dress that can be understood to represent she's on the verge of puberty, making the loss of her mother even more devastating. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I got that information from edwardmunch.com. And well, he was an interesting fellow. And remember the the one that he had, they found a note written on a, on one of the screams that said it could only have been written by a madman. Yes. Or yeah, done by, painted by a madman. And they think it was his own writing that did that. <laughs> yep. Said that's that. right. Now, while I enjoy a good ghost story and really embrace the legends that settle upon places and things, Steve takes the opposite view and is a staunch <laughs> skeptic. <laughs> yeah, I'll say I'm more skeptical, I would say that. And I have to admit, he has some good debunking stories to tell you about some of the most well-known stories of the supernatural. 
Well, there's a great article from Insider.com titled Seven Famous Ghost Stories That Turned Out to Be Total BS. Written by by a great young journalist named Stephanie Ash. Ms. Ash acknowledges that ghost stories can be entertaining and fun, so long as they're happening to someone else. Uh, But for those folks who want ghost stories to be real, there's often the buzzkill Mm -hmm. that there are usually logical and non-supernatural explanations for many of these occurrences. Some of the most famous ghost stories in the world even fall victim to being debunked. And here's a few of those debunked stories. The first one takes place in the year 1848 in the upstate New York village of Hydesville, H-Y-D-E-S-V-I-L-L-E, at the home of the Fox family. Here resides John and Margaret Fox with their daughters Maggie, age 14, and her younger sister Kate, age 11. One evening, the girls amazed their parents with the frightening tale that there was some kind of a spirit in their bedroom making noises trying to communicate with them. At first, their parents didn't believe them. Oh, yeah, come on, right. (laughs) But when they investigated further, sure enough, there were noticeable cracks and popping noises coming from the floor or walls near where the girls were standing. Soon, neighbors were called in to see if help could be found concerning the strange noises. One neighbor began asking the spirit yes and no questions. One pop or knock was determined to be a yes answer, and two were thought to be uh, to mean no. Sure enough, the spirit appeared to answer these questions with remarkable clarity. Someone in the community remembered that a young salesman had passed through a couple of years before, and it disappeared suddenly. It was thought that perhaps this was his spirit returning, as he had stayed with the previous tenants of the home where the foxes now reside. You want to buy some magazines? <laughs> Well, news about the spirit activity spread throughout the state. Now, the family had an older daughter named Leah. Hey. Yeah, good (laughs) name. Who lived on her own in Rochester, New York. She had a suspicion that her younger sisters might be trying to pull a fast one. No. She traveled to the family home, and she realized what was happening. Her younger sisters were manufacturing the sounds with their toe knuckles. Exactly. Seriously. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were wearing shoes, but they were able to crack their toe knuckles in such a way that it sounded that uh, the, the sounds were coming from either under the floor or inside the nearest wall. Well, rather than expose her conniving younger sisters, Leah smelled money. she was an entrepreneur it's a tour (laughs) she rented a home in rochester new york and charged the dollar per person for people to come and see her (laughs) younger sisters make contact with dead family members and deliver messages from the great beyond there was no shortage of paying customers as people came from all over the region to experience this supernatural occurrence it was an instant hit the fox sisters fame as spirit medium spread so quickly but they soon performed at packed theaters in New York, New England, and beyond. It marked a shift in popular attitudes toward the paranormal. You can think about it. 200 years earlier, a couple of adolescent females who claimed to be in conversation with the dead may have been burned alive as witches. But in the mid-19th century, sure, why not? they became show business celebrities. Well, this all went on for a couple of years, but then suddenly a rift between the sisters brought things to a halt. Yep. In fact, one even went on stage to demonstrate the way they cracked their toes to produce the sounds. Strangely enough, even though the Fox sisters were proven fakes, they jump-started a movement of belief in the occult and spiritualism. Within months, others emerged claiming that they had the real power to communicate with the dead, 
and the seance movement had begun. Um, <laughs> the spiritualism. Movement. We have a future yeah. episode. We're going to be talking about Arthur Conan Doyle, uh -huh. and he was one of the ones that were caught up into this seance movement. That's right. Uh, some information from that article also came from a website called the Paris Review. Now, here's one that most people have heard of, also occurring in the state of New York. One of the most famous hauntings in the United States came from an otherwise normal-looking home in the Long Island community of Amityville. That's right. I remember That's I, right. I, in the 70s, there was a movie about the Amityville horror. Yep. Now, you've probably heard how the story goes. The family moves into a house that had recently been the site of a horrific murder. They began hearing voices, seeing ghosts, and experiencing other paranormal activities before ultimately fleeing the home in terror. Well, part of that is true, but exactly how much of it, we might never know. It is a true fact that the home's previous owner, Ronnie DeFeo, D-E, mm -hmm. capital D-E, capital F-E-O, did murder his entire family in the house. At his trial, he testified that voices in the house made him do it. Meanwhile, George and Kathy Lutz moved into the house, L-U-T-Z. They claimed that they were also experiencing supernatural occurrences in the house. Whether their claims are true or not remains in question. What is true is that the Lutzes worked closely with DeFeo's attorney to either fabricate or exaggerate the hauntings. Here's a quote from Mrs. Ash's article. Quote, the Lutzes hoped to secure book and film deals, which they did. And the attorney hoped to give credence to his client's not guilty plea, which he didn't. <laughs> DeFeo received a life sentence and is, is still in prison today. No other residents of the Amityville house have reported any spooky activity in the home since then. That's right. It is still, uh, it is still occupied. And they removed those... Triangular windows. Well, or, not triangular. Was, I, they were kind of like quarter curved, round, yeah, quarter yeah, round quarter windows right. to make it less iconic looking. I remember the story, and I just watched a documentary on the whole thing. And I remember that Ed and Lorraine Warren, which uh, very famous couple in in the supernatural realm and all that kind of right. stuff, they were very involved with this case. Ed is or Ed was because neither one more alive now. He was a self taught and self professed demonologist. Uh huh. While Lorraine claimed to be clairvoyant and a okay. light trance medium. And I think they really helped to sensationalize this story right. and get it into popular media. They're also behind uh, the haunting behind the movie, The Conjuring. Okay. And so everything that they've they've done, I mean, perhaps oh, they may maybe, have gotten a cut from the movie deal. Too. Oh, yeah. Perhaps <laughs> maybe at, at best. At yeah. best, they started out with good intentions, but they really... Uh, got into the sensationalism oh, of right. it and the money and, and everything. So, yeah. All right. Now, back here closer to home in the great state of Texas, there's a small town up in North Texas called Anson, A-N-S-O-N. It's about 20 by, uh, 25 miles north of Abilene. You know, Phil, your daughter yeah. goes oh, to yeah. school up in Abilene. You might have uh, you might talk to her about She might have heard this legend. Uh, there's a, According to the local legend, a long time ago, a young boy went off camping by himself. His mother gave him a lantern and told him, quote, If you have any trouble, flash the lantern three times, and I will come find you. The boy never came home. The mother died of grief and is buried in a local cemetery. The local folks claim that if you drive down past the cemetery at midnight, turn your car around so that you are now facing back toward the cemetery, flash your lights three times, then you will see a light appearing from the cemetery, 
and will come toward you as the dead mother raises up with her lantern in search of her lost sons. <laughs> the fact that the light appears has been documented by numerous authorities and journalists. The story is often repeated by and among students at the nearby uh, colleges. So, what's up with this light? Well, back in June of 2011, several students at your daughter's college, Abilene uh -huh, Christian uh -huh. University. They had a lot of fun. Yeah. They were playing with their brand new iPhones, brand new <laughs> smartphones that were out at the time, which included the, the new app, Google Maps. Looking at their maps, they noticed that the road that passes the cemetery is directly in line with a distant section of U.S. Highway 277. And they surmise that the ants and lights are, in fact, headlights from that distant highway. So the next night, using two different cars, they tested their theory. One car drove along the section of U.S. 277 in question, while the other car sat at the crossroads by the cemetery. Communicating by phone, the students in the car at the crossroad asked their companions to flash their lights, turn them on and off, etc., and the lights corresponded to the instructions that they gave to their friends. So the mystery was solved about the Anson <laughs> there light. There you go. Anson timing. light. <clears throat> timing is everything. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Sir Kraken and I recently returned from an extended trip to Europe. So uh, jealous. <laughs> we, we had a great time, really, really terrific time. We spent the final week in the United Kingdom, and there we toured some exceptionally beautiful old buildings, including Windsor Palace. In fact, we, uh, we were there two days after they reopened it, uh, after Queen Elizabeth's uh, death, we actually got to see uh, where she is uh, buried. Wow. Uh, after, the, after the funeral, I should say. Uh, we actually got to see where she's buried. Uh, we didn't quite make it to Coventry, though, and it's too bad because the locals have claimed for centuries that a ghost abides in the cellar of a building utilized by the university as a greeting and tourist center. The cellar in question dates back to the 14th century. The ghost in the cellar has been frightening people for years. An article in The Guardian explains that in 1999, a self-proclaimed witch descended into the cellar for what was supposed to be an extended search. However, after less than one minute, she ran out of the cellar as fast as she could and was halfway across the campus before anyone could catch up with her. So something spooked her. Uh, she didn't have a broom. Maybe that was a faster. <laughs> On another occasion, a journalist visiting from Canada became faint when he thought he saw the head of a woman appear on his shoulder. Oh, yeah, that would be that would be that'd be a little creepy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. disconcerting. The numerous accounts of ghost sightings in the cellar got the attention of Vic Tandy, who was a professor and engineer. Two years prior, Tandy had been the co-author of a study of a similar ghost sighting at a different university in Warwick, England. In that study, Tandy and his partner, Dr. Tony Lawrence, a psychology professor, discovered that the Warwick location contained unusually low-frequency sound waves. Mm, I've read about this kind of thing before. Tandy cited a study from NASA in which test subjects were exposed to low-frequency sound, and several of the test subjects experienced anxiety and even hallucinations of apparitions. Tandy was called to investigate the Coventry Cellar, he brought his sensors, and he discovered that the Coventry cellar had the exact same low-level sound waves as that found in Warwick. In fact, if you want the specifics, they are actually measuring 18.9 hertz. Hmm. He thus surmised that the people who had experienced seeing ghosts and other apparitions were extremely sensitive to the low-level sound waves present in the cellar. What isn't understood, though, is why some people are impacted by these low-level waves, but others are not. 
some information came from the Guardian in that that episode, in that uh, story, rather. That's interesting. I watched a documentary where um, they did this study where there was there were and I, I have no details, no real <laughs> details on this because I don't remember what documentary it was, but they had like a a place where there were four cabins for cabins that you could rent or whatever. Right. And they did this study where they told these people that one of these cabins had contained or a, a brutal murder had happened in one of them uh-huh. and it was haunted. And they were to sit in there for five minutes by themselves mm-hmm. in each of the cabins and then tell which one was haunted. And right. one of the cabins, of course, none of this story was true, right. but one of the cabins had low level frequency and every one of them picked that cabin. Wow. They picked up on that. Somewhere. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. Well, now I've heard of this one because it supposedly occurred near where I grew up. Um, according to the legend, in 1938, a school bus stalled on the railroad tracks at a busy San Antonio, Texas intersection. 23 children were killed in the accident. Local residents claim that if you stop on the track and put your car in neutral, the ghosts mm-hmm. of the children will push your car off the track. Some have even gone as far as to put baby powder on the fenders of their cars in hopes of capturing the ghost children's fingerprints. Well, the myth was busted recently when a journalist pointed out that there is a slight incline at the intersection, which will cause your car to roll naturally. And the fingerprints, well, just like in detective work, the baby powder highlights fingerprints that were already <laughs> there. And uh, one more little thing, the bus actually didn't, the bus crash didn't actually happen in San Antonio. It happened in Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> and so that would have been an awfully long way for, and it was high school kids, not little kids. Either well, yeah, this is this is one know, of those legends. City names with S's. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It doesn't matter. Well, it's right. one of those legends I think that kind of pops up in different places, right? You know. Well, uh, in the final article, Ms. Ash details several cases where families claim to see ghosts in their homes. In one, a father claimed that in the middle of the night, uh, something or someone was trying to choke him. In each of these cases noted, the homes were found to have a carbon monoxide leak. Mm. It appears that the presence of carbon, mono- carbon monoxide can cause people to believe that they see spirits or other things that are not actually there. So that might explain some of the sightings that are seen. So those are some <laughs> that have been debunked. Well, there you go. Our last story, though, is about a family in Pennsylvania that decided to do some home renovations and got more than they bargained for. <laughs> in 2012, while opening up walls to add insulation, the Bretzis family found dozens of dead animals tucked in between the wall studs. Mm. The animals, I mean, they weren't just there naturally. The animals were wrapped in newspaper, dating back to the 1930s and 40s, along with half-used spices and other items. Horrified. <laughs> they Odd said, way to insulate your house. That's right? weird. <laughs> I, I bet it would. I bet it worked though. It kept it cool in the yeah. <laughs> in the winter and, or in the summer. Little, and had that little summer. buffer in that space there. So, yeah. <laughs> Horrified, they sent the hundreds of artifacts and carcasses they found to an expert. Wait, the, what kind of expert? Right? Well, you know, it didn't say they. Uh, Look at well, the yellow pages for a. Uh, oh no, you don't have yellow pages anymore. Look at uh, somewhere page. for a, an expert of dead animals in your walls. Google it. Go you call Ghostbusters. <laughs> um, well, this happened in Pennsylvania, and I, so oh, I think well, that the, makes sense. Okay. I think totally. the expert was on the the stuff happening, you know, locally, the culture, um, because the answer oh, okay. they received was that the items seemed to be part of powwowing or Dutch magic used to heal ailments. 
The practice、oh. of powwowing has its origins in a German book called *The Long Lost Friend* by John George Homan, published in 1820. Later editions renamed it powwows after the Algonquin word for a gathering of medicine men.、Hmm. It's a collection of folk remedies, recipes, spells, and talismans to to cure domestic ailments and rural troubles. Rural troubles. I wonder what、yeah. that entails. Yeah, yeah. Rural troubles. <laughs> you know, if、Ani- get with animals, your horse or your plow. In your walls. Yeah. Yeah. Through city yeah. troubles. It's yeah. rural troubles. Yeah.、Okay. Uh, knowing why the items were put in the walls, though, doesn't help. The Bredas family says the unique problem has cost them around twenty thousand dollars in、wow. cleanup and repair due to the horrendous smell that has not gone away and the rotting、yeah. and the mold. Yeah,、right. that's caused them to be sick. Their homeowner's insurance, surprisingly, has decided not to cover any of those costs.、Oh, wow. that's, that's a bad deal, right?、Uh, Mr. Bretz has said that the house was inspected before buying, but quote, <laughs> "I'm、oh, no. sorry,、Come、we got、on. we got the radon inspection. We looked for everything. We didn't know to look for chickens." <laughs> <laughs> that's a flimsy excuse. Again,、so. Fox43news.com is what I, or Fox43.com is what I, where I got it, but this concerned me because、um, I I found when I was researching this, I found stories of all kinds of stories about cats, mummified cats in walls,、mm-hmm. uh, and being a sign of either witchcraft or the warding off of witchcraft. And when we bought our home, it had been abandoned for several years. And we rent. We had to renovate it to make it livable,、mm. and we found mummified cats in it. We just assumed it was cats that got caught in the well, wall. Well, I would think that but, would happen too. Cats so, would just get caught in the wall and can't get out. But, I、yeah. think that's what happened, but maybe not. <laughs> you never know. You, you might do some research on who lived there way back in the day. <laughs> and now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. All right, you know how to do this trivia challenge thing. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew. Dot,、uh, I'm sorry, at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post, and put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of the post. First person to do all of that will be the winner, and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. We're also opening our trivia challenge up to school kids. Woohoo! Pay attention back there. If your classroom listens to Remnant Stew and they want to answer the trivia questions, then send us an email with their answer to staycurious@remnantstew.com. If your class wins, we will send you a cool little goodie bag to to the class, some kind of a care package. Now Harbin sent us this question. It's not、uh-uh. quite quit kid friendly. <laughs> it's a little well. It's a little out there.、Right. Go back this, to sleep, kids. <laughs> Especially you in the back. Yeah, this twenty-five acre patch of land could be considered one of the creepiest places in Texas. So much so that it has its own nickname and has even been had a movie made about it. Due to over thirty murder victims being dumped there throughout the nineteen seventies, what is its nickname and where is it located?、Uh, my Aggie friends would call it the University of Texas at Austin. <laughs> that's not quite the one they were thinking about. Hey, thanks for spending this time with us. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Remnant Stew Podcast. You can also send us an email to say hi or suggest a topic for a future episode at StayCuriousAtRemnantStew.com. We'd love to hear from you. Remnant Stew is now a part of Rook and Raven Ventures and is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode, along with commentary by audio producer 
Philip St. Phil. They don't let me talk much. <laughs> Theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. Special thanks goes out to Judy Meeker and Harvin Gold. Well, now, before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head on over to Apple Music and leave us a review. Please. Share Remnant Stew with your friend, your family, and the Grim Reaper if you happen to run into him. Lives next door, you know it. Until next time, remember to choose to be kind. And and always stay curious. curious.